All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Power Show. Today is Friday, February 18th, 2022. And we are going to conclude the Torah portion of Ki Tisa. The main theme of this Torah portion, or a major dramatic story in the Torah portion, is the episode of the golden calf, the sin of the golden calf, and its aftermath. We read about the people's betrayal of their commitment to Hashem. Hashem had said, I'm your only God. I'm the only one. Don't worship anything else. And what does God, and what do the people do 40 days later? They create and worship a golden calf. That was a big no-no. Hashem expressed his desire to Moshe, to Moses, to destroy the people, God forbid. Moses goes to bat for them, ultimately gains Hashem's forgiveness, not for everyone. Some people um, are punished with, uh, with death, but the, the majority of the people, two million people strong, survive this episode due to Hashem's forgiveness. Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, puts his own life on the line, so to speak, his own identity on the line to save his people. He tells God famously, as we've talked about in the last few days, Forgive them, and if not, erase my name from this book that you've written. I don't want to have anything to do with it. If you cannot forgive your people, then I don't want a part of it. Then take me out. Leave me alone. God ultimately forgives the people. He says, however, I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to send an angel with you. Moses presses, and he says, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. If you don't send, if you if you're not going to go with us, you're just going to send an angel. You'll send a representative. Forget it. Deal's off. We're out. So God says, "Okay, fine. I'll go with you. Okay, fine." And that's how we ended off um, a few days ago in our last session. I'm going to share my screen. Let's jump in to the fifth reading. After securing God's forgiveness and God's promise that he's going to lead the people once again, God tells Moses, we got we to gotta fix the tablets that were broken. Not fix them directly, but replace them. Exodus chapter 34, I guess it was still under warranty. You know, they broke under warranty. There we go, we get a second set of tablets. The Lord said to Moses, hew for yourself, hew for yourself, two stone tablets like the first ones. And I will inscribe upon the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. I'm going to, and so you, I, I provided, God provided the stone and the inscription for the last one. For this one, God says, you provide the stone and I'll inscribe it. I'll engrave it, but you need to provide the stone. Let's continue. Be prepared for the morning, God says. And in the morning, you shall ascend Mount Sinai. And stand before me there on the top of the mountain. No one shall ascend with you. That sounds familiar. We had that before. By Sinai, by the, by the um, uh, revelation at Sinai experience, Moses was the only one allowed to ascend. Once again, to receive the second tablets from on high, Moses is told, you got to go alone. You got to go by yourself. No one shall ascend with you, neither shall anyone be seen anywhere on the mountain. Neither shall the sheep and the cattle graze facing that mountain. Nothing should be anywhere on the mountain. Animals shouldn't face the mountain. It's a holy place, etc. All right, that was God's call. Moses did exactly as he was told. So Moses hewed two stone tablets like the first ones. And he, Moses arose early in the morning and he ascended Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. 
and he took two stone tablets in his hand. Now, we've discussed this before, and Donna likes to mention this as well, because it's, um, it's in the field, in, in her field, right? So the stone, what kind of stone was used, right? Help us out here. The stone that was used was? Sapphire. Sapphire. These were <laughs> sapphire stone tablets. Can you imagine how beautiful that was? Beautiful chunks of mass, massive chunks of sapphire stone cut in these large squares engraved with God's writing. Stunning. Absolutely gorgeous. Ray, yeah. Hold on. You're muted. Don't forget to unmute. Hold on. Ray, you got to unmute. You got it. The, the, the first tablets, the way they were engraved, um, it was the right way, no matter where we're front or back. But good. the second set, I'm not sure that they were engraved through and through. It's a good, that's a good question. We got to look it up. I'm not sure offhand. I'm not sure offhand. I don't think so. It might be that that miracle was only for the first tablets, not the second one, or it might be also, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. We got to look it up. But also, yeah. for the what happened to the broken pieces of the first set? Oh, good. The broken pieces were also contained ultimately in the Ark of the Covenant. They saved the pieces and they went inside the same Ark, the same uh, Ark of the Covenant. It was a box. What did it hold? The tablets. Which set? Both sets. The two whole tablets, the second tablets, and the original broken tablets. Maybe we'll get to an insight into that. I've shared it before many times, but okay, let's continue in the narrative. So Moses, so God tells Moses, carve the tablets, bring them up, and Moses brings them up. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and he called out in the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him, passed before Moses, and proclaimed, these are the 13 attributes of divine mercy. God proclaimed, Lord, Lord, Hashem, Hashem, benevolent God, who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth, preserving loving kindness for thousands, forgiving iniquity and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not completely clear of sin. He visits the iniquity of parents and children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. So he preserves kindness for thousands of generations and the iniquity for three or four. We might call that intergenerational trauma. You can call it what you will. But clearly the power of good is overwhelmingly greater than the power of negativity. The, 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 these verses, at least one and a half of them, you know, partials, uh, six and part of seven, are what we call the Yud Gimomidas Harachamim, the 13 attributes of divine mercy. What are the 13 attributes of divine mercy? It's God talking about himself as being merciful, right? God, benevolent, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness and truth, preserving loving kindness for thousands, forgiving iniquity and rebellion and sin. All of these are expressions of Hashem's, of God's, compassion, forgiveness, patience, love, graciousness, graciousness, benevolence, etc. We recite these. God told Moses, God told Moses, I'm sharing with you the formula. When things get a little dicey, you can trot these out and remind me of how compassionate and patient I am. In other words, when things can get a little, when things spiritually are not going so well, and there might be, a, there's a fear of maybe divine um, 
anger. So, and of course, I'm anthropomorphizing this whole discussion. It's not God doesn't really get angry, but when there's a feeling of, you know, a sense of uneasiness, then it's appropriate to, to, to verbalize these 13 attributes of mercy to kind of evoke the divine compassion, the divine mercy, the divine benevolence from on high so as to effuse, to, to saturate the world with this type of love and compassion and grace. And thus... Every day, listen to this, every day in the prayers, in the morning prayers, after the Amidah, we recite Tachnun, which is the prayers of penitence, in which we say, it's like a mini Yom Kippur version, you know, where we stand there and tap our chest, I did this wrong, I did that wrong. We do a mini paragraph of that every single day, except for holidays and Shabbat, when we're not supposed to be focusing on the negative. Forget the negative, it's all positive, but every other day, weekday, we do do a quick mention of the negative, and then right after that we say, Hashem, Hashem, Kelracham Vachanon, Hashem, you're merciful, Hashem, you're benevolent, which means even though I know I'm imperfect, even though I know my flaws, even though I know I messed up, but I know that you have patience. I know that you will take compassion and won't, you know, punish because your predominant nature is love. We get this formula of prayer from God Himself. God tells it to Moses, and then tells Moses, you can use this anytime you need. On Yom Kippur, we say it many, many times. Hashem, Hashem, Kerachum, Vechanun, Erech, Apayim. We say it again and again and again. In fact, in the Ne'ilah, in the closing prayer of Yom Kippur, there's one prayer in which every paragraph we alternate, a paragraph with that refrain of the 13 attributes of mercy. We say, you know, we're not perfect, Hashem. We're not, God, we're not perfect, but you're compassionate. God, we've messed up, but you're compassionate. We keep on doing this, we keep on doing it back and forth. It's a really beautiful prayer. That's what Moses did, though, to save the Jewish people. Essentially. But God is giving him an actual script. Yes, correct. Moses spoke about that. Hashem, God, you're, you know, you're, you have to have, right, that was, the, that was the angle that Moses took. But here, God is giving him an actual script that we use till this day in our prayers. Okay, it's very, it's very cool. Now, let me share my screen again. So God um, proclaimed these attributes, and then Moses hastened, bowed his head to the ground, and prostrated himself. So Moses, bow, hearing this, Moses bows down. And he said to God, If I have now found favor in your eyes, O Lord, let the Lord go now in our midst, even if they are a stiff-necked people. And this is him just pushing the agenda one more time. Hashem, God, if you're really forgiving us, then come with us. Don't send us away with an angel. Come with us. Even if we're a stiff-necked people. Even if we're a little stubborn. Still, yes, we're not easy. We're complicated, but be with us. And you shall forgive our iniquity and our sin and thus secure us as your possession. This is Moses again advocating. He said, look, if you're really loving, kind, and compassionate, and gracious, and benevolent, great. Then come with us and forgive us and let us be yours and you'll be ours and that's it. Let bygones be bygones, basically. Um, okay, so that takes us to the end of the fifth reading. We still have two more. I just want to look at Rashi here. Rashi, hew for yourself, God showed him, Moses, a sapphire mine. Sapphire mine. That's where we get it from, right? Sapphire. Within his, within his tent. It was in Moses' tent. 
How did he not see it? I don't know. Maybe he had a dig. And he said to him, the sapphire chip shall be yours. You know, when you engrave, so pieces come out. You know, you have chips. You have stone that comes out where you... Or when you cut it, there's pieces, edges. So God says, you'll get, you'll get the chips. The chips of sapphire. And from there, Moses became very wealthy. I like this. Rabbi? Yes. Rabbi, from last year, my Shavuot design for, with Lamud, it inc- the charm was actually a sapphire chip. Mm. Oh, see? There you go. I like saying the following insight. When we engrave Torah on our hearts, in our lives, right? Like engraving the tablets. When we engrave Torah, God's word on, in us, it never takes away from our physical blessings. Right? Moses becomes wealthy. How? Through engraving Torah or through carving the stones of Torah. When we carve out time and space for, to, for the study of Torah, it never detracts from the, from the physical blessings, from the financials. It can only help. Torah can only help. Okay, um, let's look at... It's a good Rashi that we're skipping, but nonetheless, for time purposes, we're going to skip it. Let's see, let's see, let's see. Yes. Moses requests, go now in our midst. Rashi says, as you promised us. Right? You just told me a minute ago, a few moments ago at least, that you're going to go with us. I'm just holding you to that promise. Since you forgive iniquity. If you forgive iniquity, then you should forgive us. Which means that if they are a stiff-necked people, and they rebelled against you, and you've said concerning this, lest I destroy you on the way, you will still forgive our iniquity. Right? In other words, since you're so merciful and kind and benevolent and compassionate, then even if we sin, forgive us anyway. And you shall give us to yourself as a special possession. Okay, reading six. Let's jump in. God replies to Moses. And he said, with a capital H, and God said to Moses, Behold, I will form a covenant in the presence of all your people, and I will make distinctions such as have not been created upon all the earth and among all the nations. And all the people in whose midst you are shall see the work of the Lord, how awe-inspiring it is, that which I will perform with you. What God is saying is, yes, I agree. I will be with you. And I will be with you to the extent that you will look different than other nations. I will make distinctions. Miracles, distinctions. You're going to be unique people. And such miracles, such distinctions that no one's ever seen before. And it's going to be awe-inspiring. What I do with you guys is going to be awe-inspiring. What are we referring to? Commenters discuss it. Like, what, what's this big distinction and awe-inspiring? Maybe it's Torah mitzvot. Maybe it's the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the temple. Creating a distinction. A place where people can come and say, wow, this is a Jewish temple. Whew. Ten miracles every day happen in the temple. So maybe, maybe that's the message. Or maybe the message is the, the greatest miracle is us creating space for God, making a Mishkan, making a tabernacle in our lives. Maybe that's the miracle. The miracle of, uh, of a relationship between mortal and immortal, between finite and infinite. Either way, verse 10 alludes to something absolutely magical that is happening or going to happen. Verse 11, keep carefully what I am commanding you today. God says to Moses, tell the people, 
Be careful what I'm telling you. Lo, I will drive out from before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. One, two, three, four, five, six. Beware. So here's the commandment. He says, keep carefully what I'm commanding you today. What's the commandment? So this is FYI. You're going to go into the land and you're going to drive out those people. Or I will drive out those people before you. But beware, lest you form a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you're coming. Don't make nice and allow them to continue their pagan practices in your land. Lest it become a snare in your midst. If you go into the land of Israel and you say, you know what, let's be neighbors. Let's be neighbors. You guys have your worship, pagan Pagan forms of worship, I have my form, we have our form of worship, live and let live. Sounds great. Sounds very um, 2022. And that's, I think, kind of our sensibilities now. But Hashem is saying, God is saying, not a good idea. When it comes down to, to this, what's at stake over here, monotheism, Judaism, Yiddishkeit, you can't leave that opening for paganism. It's just not, it's just, it's, it's incompatible. Rather, he says, you shall demolish their altars, shatter their monuments, and cut down their sacred trees, the Asherah tree, Asherah, special tree that they used to worship. I mentioned that Wednesday night in the class. There was a special tree that, they, that pagans would worship. Cut those down. Get them out. For you shall not prostrate yourself before another god. Don't bow down because the Lord whose name is Jealous One is a jealous God. God says, you know what? I don't take kindly to infidelity. I don't like you fooling around with some other deity on the side. <coughs> I don't want you to serve other idols. Therefore, when you enter the land, get rid of them. Get rid of idolatry. Get rid of the altars. Get rid of the trees. Get rid of the monuments. That's it. Lest you form a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. This is the problem. He says, don't do this. Don't make a covenant. And they, the Gentiles, go astray after their God. So you're going to... You're going to want to be nice. So then you're going to make a covenant and say, live and let live. And then they're, going to, uh, then they're going to run after their gods. And they offer sacrifice to their gods. And they invite you. And you eat of their slaughtering. So what's going to happen? They're going to be offering their sacrifices to paganism. They're going to have their idolatrous situations. And then what? Then they're going to have meat. And then they're going to ca call you over for dinner. Come on over for dinner. Sure. Whatever. And then they're going to give you of their sacrifices, which is a euphemism for getting swept up in that whole um, pagan uh, lifestyle. And then the next step is you take of their daughters for your sons, and then they, their daughters will go straight after their gods and lead your sons straight after their gods. So your sons are going to marry their daughters, and then what? And then their daughters, your daughters-in-law, are going to serve their idols, and then the next thing you know, your sons are going to serve idols, and it's going to be a disaster. And, and Judaism essentially ends at that point. Because Judaism is nothing but this idea of Hashem Echad, God is one, monotheism. That's what makes Judaism Judaism. That's the foundation. It's the, literally the pillar of Judaism as crafted by Abraham. The pillar is, the foundation is, the base is Hashem Echad, God is one, monotheism. So you're going to get your land, you're going to have all these neighbors, you'll let them be, they're going to do their thing, and you're going to be drawn toward them. And then what? No more Judaism. Then paganism for everyone. To create a culture, a distinct culture, there has to be distinct lines, distinct walls that are put up on some level at least. That's the idea here. This touches on a general question, right? To what degree should we be secluding ourselves from the rest of the world to preserve our tradition versus being out there? 
And it's not only a Jewish question, by the way. This is a question that every culture faces when, they're, when they come in contact with another culture, let alone a larger culture that has completely different customs, traditions, beliefs. To what extent do you hold on to, what, to, to who you are versus assimilate in the larger environment? Yeah. Fiddler on the roof. I mean, this is, this is the classic issue that's also a Jewish issue, and this is this, it's stated right here. God says, don't make a covenant. Don't let them be there with their idols and their houses of worship. It's not going to work. It's not going to end well. Let's continue. On the theme about uh, non-idol worship, God says, you shall not make molten gods for yourself. No molten gods. Then we get into a holiday discussion. Seems kind of out of, left, out of left field. But if we're talking about the temple and the Mishkan and all that stuff and Judaism versus uh, paganism, so I guess it makes sense also to bring up the holidays on, uh, on which the sacrifices were brought. Okay, let's take a look at the next verse, 18. We start with, with Passover. The three holidays begin with Passover, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. The festival of unleavened cakes, Chag HaMatzos, the holiday of Matzos, you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened cakes, which I have commanded you at the appointed time, at the appointed meeting time of the month of spring. From the month of spring you went out of Egypt. So clearly Pass- Passover has to happen in the spring, which is why the Jewish calendar is situated like this year with a leap year. Right, so that we push, because Passover would have been really early. Passover would have been almost like encroaching on, on end of winter as opposed to the spring. So we need another Adar, a second month, a 13th month, to keep pushing Passover where it needs to be. Next, all that opens the womb is mine. Firstborn animals, mine. And all your livestock that bears a male by the emergence of ox or lamb. And a firstborn donkey, so you can't bring that as an offering because donkeys aren't kosher. So what do you do with a firstborn donkey? You shall redeem with a lamb. Switch it out for a lamb. So basically, all firstborn animals you have to bring as an offering. So what happens? You have a sheep, good. Lamb, sure. Cow, yes. Excellent. What about a donkey? Firstborn donkey, mazel tov. Here's a gift to the temple. Donkey? It's not kosher. So you switch it out with a lamb. You redeem it with a lamb. Now, if you do not redeem it, you shall decapitate it, which means you just, you, you can't, you can't use it for any mundane purpose. You can't bring it as, a, as an offering because if you don't redeem the donkey, if the donkey is the firstborn donkey and you, do, you did nothing with it, it's holy. It's to God, but you can't bring it to God because it's not kosher. You can't work it in the field or for donkey rides at the local um, farm because it's holy. So what do you do? Decapitate it. I don't know. You have to let it, uh, let it die or whatever it is. It's just, it, it can't be used for mundane purposes. Every firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. Now, let's, that was animals. People also. Firstborn sons, well, you don't bring them as an offering, but you redeem them, and they shall not appear before me empty-handed. That means when you come for the, for the, for the, the holiday experience, make sure you're bringing a sacrifice or two. Six days may you work. Once again, Shabbat. Six days you, uh, you may work, and on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing and in harvest you shall rest. 
In other words, notwithstanding how important it is to work the land and develop the land, etc., Shabbos comes, done. You shall make for yourself next holiday a festival of weeks, Shavuot, Shavuot, festival of weeks. The first of the wheat harvest, that's when the wheat harvest begins, and the third holiday, <coughs> the festival of the ingathering, that is Sukkot, at the turn of the year. So the harvest is when you cut the wheat, the ingathering, Sukkot, is when you gather it in. Those happen bookended on the summer, right? Shavuot is the beginning of the summer, Sukkot is the end of the summer, so you cut the wheat then, you leave it out to dry in the field, and then before it gets rainy, by Sukkot, you gather it in. <coughs> Three times during the year. Shall all your males appear directly before the Master, the Lord, the God of Israel. Which means, <coughs> for these three festivals, every Jewish male was required to show up in Jerusalem at the temple. You got to show up. Why? Because it's a holiday. Now, why not women and children? Because they can't always make it. You can't obligate someone who can't make it. It's, children can't always make the trip. It's not possible. Babies, etc. And, and, and women, mothers, also can't always be expected to make the trip. Is there a problem to go? Of course not. But who's obligated to the point that if they don't go, it's held against them? The men. You might ask, shouldn't the men be home, you know, together with the wife and kids? Sure. But for a holiday, for a few days here or there, if the guy's going to take off for a business trip, yeah, then let him take off for, uh, for a holiday as well to go to, uh, to go to the temple and bring back that inspiration to the family. Let the whole family go also, by the way. The whole family should go. But it's not a binding obligation for the rest of the family to go. You can't obligate someone who might not be able to do it. It's not fair. If I tell someone, you have to do this, and they're like, um, I might not be able to. You have to. It's not fair. So the obligation is only binding on men. The mitzvah, the good deed, would be for everybody. Okay, I hope that's clear. Verse 24. When I drive out nations from before you, this is referring to Israel, when I drive them out, God says, and I widen your border, no one will covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times each year. Look at that. God says, you're going to think, if all the men, listen to this, I just said that all the men should come to Jerusalem. If all the men leave their homes and their farms, what's going to happen? Imagine if all the nations around Israel know that on Passover, all the men are in Jerusalem. They're going to attack, a, 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 you know, a, God forbid, they might think of attacking a corner of the land that's now left unprotected. There are no, there are no soldiers, no men protecting it. I know we're being a little uh, gender biased here, but the, in, the, in, the, in the biblical understanding... In the Torah's commandment, it was men who were drafted for the army. And so now you have all the men, including all the military men, in Jerusalem at the temple. So who's watching the home front? The homestead. Homestead? Home front? Who's watching it? Who's protecting it? So God says, I got this. I'm protecting it. I, I told you to come to me in Jerusalem. I got it. Don't worry about the farm. Don't worry about the house. Don't worry about the countryside estate or the vineyard, or the wheat field, or the apple orchard. I got this. He says, no one will cover your land when you go up. None, none of the other nations will have an intention to cover, to, to, to harm. 
to appear before the Lord your God three times a year. No one is going to bother you when you go up three times a year to the land, uh, to, to Jerusalem. You shall not slaughter or sprinkle the blood of my sacrifice with leaven. Again, seems like a disconnected mitzvah. That when you um, offer the sacrifice, you don't bring it with chametz. And the offering of the Passover feast shall not remain overnight to the morning. You have to finish it before daybreak. You've got to finish the lamb, the Paschal lamb, before daybreak. The choicest of the first of your soil you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. That's the Bikurim, the first, first fruits, the best, the first. You planted, you plowed, you planted, you watered, it grew, and now, oh, look, you got the first tomato. You want to Instagram it. Before you Instagram it, take it to God. That's the idea. And then finally, in this, in this reading, reading six, you shall not cook a kid and its mother's milk, the mitzvah of kosher, not mixing meat and milk. Not, there's three, three times the prohibition is stated. One, to prohibit cooking together. One, to prohibit eating together. One, to prohibit benefiting from the mixture. So we can't cook it even if we're not going to eat it together. We can't just, you can't cook meat and milk together. That in and of itself is a problem. Even if you didn't cook it or it's not cooked, let's say you just layer the two together, a cold piece of meat, a cold piece of cheese. So I didn't cook, I didn't cook, can't eat it. Let's say I didn't cook it and I didn't, and, and I didn't eat it, but I'm selling it. I, put a, I took a piece of meat and a piece of cheese and I'm selling a sandwich. Can't profit off it either. Cannot make money or derive any benefit from that mixture of meat and milk. Okay, I'm going to pause for a moment and check in with everybody. How's it going? Just checking in. Make sense so far? Okay. Good. Awesome. Back inside. Back to our story. Reading number seven. Reading seven. Back to the second set of tablets. The Lord said to Moses, inscribe these words for yourself. For according to these words, I have formed the covenant with you and with Israel. So let's get these written in stone. He was there, Moses was there with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights to get the second set of tablets. He ate no bread and drank no water. 40 days and 40 nights? Wow. Turned into an angel. And he inscribed upon the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And he is referring to God. You see the capital H. God inscribed the, the tablets, even the second set of tablets. Moses cut the stone and God did the inscription. And it came to pass. I love this. I love this part of the narrative. It's so unusual and so little known. I mean, you and I know it because we've been, you know, we've been doing this for a little while. But listen to this. It came to pass that when Moses descended from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he descended from the mountain and Moses did not know that the skin of his face had become radiant while he had spoken with him. So Moses comes down with the second set of tablets and his face is shining like the sun. It says his face was shining. You know, like the sun is, is like a, a source of light. It just shines, emanates from the sun. His face was emanating light. It's crazy. Sugar. His face was emanating light. It's, 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 it's astounding. Why? Because he had spoken with God for 40 days and 40 nights. I guess that's what happens. One of the outcomes of speaking with God 40 days and 40 nights is that your face begins to shine. 
So it happened that Aaron and, and all the children of Israel saw Moses, and behold, so everyone saw him, the skin of his face had become radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. He didn't know. Moses didn't know. He didn't look in the mirror. But everyone else knew. They saw it, and they were afraid to come near him. They're like, this guy is, this guy is radioactive. I mean, this, this is crazy. Who has a, a face that shines? But Moses called them. He called, out, he called to them, and Aaron and all the princes of the community returned to him, and Moses would speak to them. Moses says, don't worry, nothing to fear. It's still me. I'm okay. Not been possessed by any spirits. I'm just communicating with God. This is what happens. And so he called them, and he taught them the Torah. Yeah, Ray. Um, and this is where um, people that aren't Jewish get the idea that Jews have horns because it was really the light that was emanating from him and the, pa the painting by, by, all right, I forget the artist, uh, famous artist. Yeah. And to this day, there are people that think Jews have horns. Yes, exactly right. And the verse, it's right here. We, we, we just did it, but thank you for pointing it out. Karan Arpanov. Karan. And in verse number 30, the word radiant, Karan, Karan, can also mean horn. Or a it doesn't mean horn also. But Karen, the same letters, Karen is horn. Karan is radiant. So, yeah, the, whoever was saw the word and like, oh, horn. And that's it. And off to the races with, with random false stereotypes. Be that as it may, Moses' face is luminescent. Um, so, yeah, let's continue verse 32. Afterwards, all the children of Israel would run here, and he would command them everything that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. So they would come, and he would teach them. What God had told him for 40 days and 40 nights. What do you think they were talking about? Stock tips? They were talking about Torah. So for the rest of their travels, you know, Moses would tell them what he'd learned. Now listen to this. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he placed a covering, a mask, masva, a mask over his face. Not when he was teaching them Torah. When he was teaching them the Torah, his face was shining. When he was done, you know, Put on, put on the cover. When Moses would come before the Lord to speak with him, that's like when he would come to the Holy of Holies or outside the Holy of Holies in the, in the, in the, in the Omod, in the tent of meeting. So he would remove the covering until he left. When, so when he spoke with God, when he communicated with God, he took off the mask, obviously. Then he would leave a, 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 until he left God's presence. Then he would leave and would speak to the children of Israel what would be commanded. Then the children of Israel would see Moses' face, that the skin of his face had become radiant, and then Moses would replace the covering over his face until he would come again to speak with him. So the way it worked is, typically, Moses had his face covered. Typically, Moses' face was covered. Except when he spoke with God, and right after he spoke to God, he would speak to the people, it would remain uncovered. So speaking with God, his face was open. Then he would go straight to the people to tell them what he just heard. And his face was still open and uncovered. You can imagine people were like blown away when he was done, when all that, when the learning and the communicating was done, put the mask on. And then he went to Kroger. I'm kidding, right? And then he uh, did his thing, whatever else he did. When he communicated with God and then recommunicated that or transmitted that to the people, no covering. What's the message? Torah 
transforms our visage. It transforms our face. It transforms, or at least it ought to transform everything about us. How we look, how we sound, how we speak, how we act. That's what Torah is meant to do. God's word is meant to transform us. And then, yes, sometimes when we walk out into the world, we have to put on a mask. Maybe we put on a mask. We shouldn't, but maybe we do put on a mask. We hide a little bit. That's not exactly what Moses was doing. He wasn't hiding. He was protecting people from the blinding light. But we have to remember that at least in certain places, at least we have to take off the mask. Hearing Torah, communicating Torah, take off the masks, take off the the layers, the covers, the lies, the falsehoods. Just embrace. Just embrace who we are. Okay, good. Questions, comments? Okay. Let's do the half Torah. We did this on Wednesday, but let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's read it all the way through. Okay. Here we go. Half Torah comes from the book of Kings, chapter 18, Chai. And it's the famous story of the showdown on Mount Carmel with uh, Elijah the prophet and the idolaters. And Ahab sent among all the children of Israel, and he gathered the prophets to Mount Carmel. Rabbi, excuse me, what time frame is this? 2,800 years ago. So, I mean, how, how far is it past what, what we're discussing now with the Torah, you know, the giving of the command, commandments? Excellent question. This is about 3,300 years ago, so we're talking about 500 years later. 500. Probably a little bit more. Give or take. Yeah. So, now, this is in the times of the first temple. The first, so the first temple exists now. I mean, at this point. Yes. So, after David, Solomon builds the temple. This is after Solomon. Solomon, there were other kings. And at this point, the king was corrupt. The, The Jewish king was an idol worshiper. That should give you a sense... We talk about the Jewish kingdom with the temple. It wasn't that great for that long. I mean, that's what comes out from this, from the history. It was, there was corruption that quickly set set in. When I say corruption, I mean like to the point of not like very un-Jewish idolatry, paganism. So this is what, this is why Elijah was Elijah. Like what was his job? His job was to tell people, guys, this is not right. This is crazy. That's literally what he did. That was a full-time job. Was condemning and 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 inspired, trying to inspire the people. That was like the whole his like his full-time job. So let's let's get in. <coughs> and Ahab sent among the children of Israel, and he gathered the prophets. The prophets. These are the evil. These are the the idolatrous prophets of the Baal to Mount Carmel. And Elijah drew near to all the people and said. These are the, the spectators. So there were, three, there were three groups of people. There were the prophets of the Baal, the prophets of the idol. There was Elijah. So those were the two sides of the battle. And then the people, the spectators. They were watching. So Elijah drew near to the people, to the spectators, and he said, until when are you hopping between two ideas? You guys are back and forth. One day you're in the temple, and one day you're secretly, you know, Sacrificing to the Baal. It's like you're living a double life. 
if the Lord is God, go after him, and if the Baal, go after him. And the people did not know, did not answer him a word. And Elijah spoke to the people and continued, I have, I have remained the prophet to the Lord by myself. And the prophets of the Baal are 450 men. And let them give us, let them choose two bulls. And we, we talked about the whole story about the talking bulls on Wednesday. Anyway, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood. But fire they shall not put, and I will prepare one bull, and I will put it on the wood, and, and the fire will I not place. It says that when this happened, the, uh, the Baal prophets, they knew they were in trouble because they knew they, they, they couldn't create fire out of nowhere. So they put somebody in the pile of wood on the altar. They hit a person there with a match or with some sort of... It's like the commentaries, the Medrash, the Talmud says this. What happened? A snake bit him and he died. And therefore they had no one on the inside to make it... They were trying to pull off a magic trick. A magic trick, though. A magic trick, right? They tried to have, uh, you know, a stagehand, so to speak, light the fire and make it seem like magic. God made sure that didn't work. Anyway, that's like a side piece of the story here. Anyway, um, and you will call, so, you know, we just read 23, 24. And you will call in the name of your deity, the Baal, and I will call in the name of the Lord Hashem, and it will be the God that will answer with the fire. He is God. So whoever gets it, whoever gets the fire, is legit. And all the people answered, and they said, Tov HaDavar, this is good. The thing is good. And Elijah said to the prophets of the Baal, Choose for yourselves the one bull and prepare it first. You go first. Since you are the majority, you're 450 against one, you guys go first. By all means, gentlemen, take it away. And call in the name of your deity and fire place not. Don't place the fire. Don't put no monkey business. You have to do it through spiritual means. So they took the bull that he gave them and prepared it. And they called in the name of the Baal from morning until noon. Hours. Three, four, five hours straight. Six hours they were praying. Please. Saying, oh Baal, answer us. These are Jews. So-called prophets. And they're davening, they're praying to the Baal. It's, it's crazy. This is what's going on. But there was no voice and no answer. There's no voice and no answer. No call, no response. And they hopped on the altar they had made. They jumped on it. And it was at noon that Elijah scoffed at them and he said, Call with a loud voice, for he's a god, right? Perhaps he's talking or he is pursuing enemies or he's on a journey. Perhaps he is sleeping and will awaken. You have to shout louder. He's just playing, he's just playing around with them at this point. And they called with a loud voice and gashed themselves, as was their custom, with sword and lances until blood, blood gushed on them. And as the afternoon passed, and they feigned to prophecy until the time of the sacrifice of the evening service, and there was no voice and no answer, and no one was listening. So they tried to like keep on going until evening. Maybe it's, they're going to get answered. Nothing garnished, not happening. There was no voice, no answer. And Elijah said to the people, Come near to me. Now my turn. And all the people came near to him, and, and he repaired the tore down altar of the Lord. Elijah took twelve stones. Corresponds to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. He built the stones into an altar in, in the name of the Lord and made a trench as great as would contain two soft seed around the altar. He dug 
a trench around the altar, and he arranged the wood, and he cut up the bull, and he placed it upon the wood, and he said, fill for me, fill me four pitchers of water, and pour them on the burnt offerings and on the wood. And he said, repeat it, and they repeated it, and he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time. They doused it with water. And the water went around the altar, and also the trench he filled with water. So there's water everywhere. That makes it harder to produce a fire. Yeah, if you douse it with water, good luck. Good luck with the fire. No, no tricks. No, uh, no, no rabbits in the hat or no, no tricks under the sleeve. Water. And a wet, yeah, he really used um, kerosene. I'm kidding. It was water. It was legit water. Let's continue. Um, and it was when the evening sacrifice was offered, in the evening, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and your word have I done and, and at your word I've done all these things. In other words, God, do it for you. Do it for me, but do it for you. Show everybody that you're legit, that you're the real God. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. This people and this people shall know that you are the Lord God and you have turned their hearts backwards. In other words, you'll turn them around. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offerings and the wood and the stones and the earth and the water which was in the trench. It licked up. It worked. And all the people saw and fell on their face, and they said, Hashem, Hulakim, Hashem, Hulakim, God, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. We did it Wednesday night. We did it again today. We're going to do it again tomorrow for reals, reading it inside. What's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is, it's good to know the truth. It's good to remain connected to the truth, even when it's a little bit difficult. We look back and say, what were they thinking? They were worshiping the Baal? Or the golden calf in the Torah portion? Come on, what were they thinking? And I'll just, leave you, I'll, I'll just leave you with this. We do the same thing. We believe in Hashem, we believe in God, we pray to God, and yet we put our hopes and dreams in all sorts of other things. We say this one is going to do this, and that one's going to do that, and then this thing is going to happen. And What about God? Sometimes we forget. If we can forget about God, it's essentially, right? a golden calf, or bow worship. It's the same idea. Putting your eggs in a different basket other than Hashem. That's it. They prayed to the Baal. Why? Because they wanted. And so who do we pray to? Do we never pray to a Baal? Do we never pray to some, something else? Do we never put our stock in some other force? We do that sometimes. So it's a reminder for us not to judge them. These guys are crazy. They serve the golden calf. They forged Jewish kings and Jewish, prof- and, and Jewish prophets were, were, were fixated on idolatry. It's easy to point fingers. The real question is, what are we doing, right? Are we totally in on this or in for this totally for Hashem? Or do we have a little bit of a, do we play some games sometimes also? It's a question. It's at least a, a good question to ask ourselves. No one else. You don't have to ask anyone else. It's an internal question. Am I where I need to be? Am I fully committed? Or am I or am I on both sides of the fence? I do a little for this, I do a little for that. I believe in God, but I also have a have a backup plan or have other, you know, have a side hustle. That's what's that's the question. All right, my friends. Yes. It sounds like at this point in time that it was more of a majority that were not 
the, vo- the vocal majority. Certainly the vocal yeah. majority. I don't know what about the actual majority, but the ones who showed up, the ones who made noise, were the, vo- yeah, the vocal majority. It seems like we're not. In fact, Elijah says to God, I'm the only one left. Right. And God's like, you're not. And just to prove that you're not the only one left, you're going to go to every Brit Mila, every circumcision in history. Because you're going to see that, no, you're not the only one. This guy and that one and this family and that family, you're not the only one. But it sometimes feels lonely when other people are shouting, which is also a lesson in life. Not to become despondent when people are making a lot of noise. You've got to stay, stay true. All right, I've got to run. I want to wish everybody a good Shabbos. Sunday, big musical event Sunday, 6 p.m. dinner, followed by the show. 6 o'clock it starts, 6.30 the show. 6, 6 dinner, 6.30 the show. At Chabad in town, in town Jewish Academy, 7.30 Ponce Place, upstairs. Um, Monday night after the fire with Marika Feuerstein. And check your local listings. All right. Good Shabbos, everyone. Have a wonderful Shabbos. You got my text. I am. I'm, yes. Please, God, before Shabbos, I will get you in for everything. Thank you. Yes. I got it. All right. Good Shabbos. Good Shabbos, everyone. Lots of blessings. Lots of love. And... Only amazing things. See you soon. Take care, everybody. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.